Turn to Hebrews chapter 4. The book of Hebrews is a sermon to a church that is considering becoming a synagogue. We believe it's a little group of believers, a little church in Rome. We believe that they, under the persecution of Rome and likely the persecution of the Roman, excuse me, the Jews, that they are considering going back to a safe fallback of Judaism. So the whole book of Hebrews is one big sermon from their pastor who's not with them at the moment, thankfully. He's written this thing so that we can hear this sermon, and we've been spending the last year and a half to two years or so in the first few chapters of this book. What we find in the book is a mixture of exposition and exhortation. Exposition is where true things are exposed about God. The way you can differentiate between exposition and exhortation is the trajectory of the verbs. In exposition, most of what you see, the verbs that are taking place there are God did this, God did that, Christ did this. You might see some other people involved. Moses did this. And then in exhortation, you see the verbs change from God did this, Christ did this, to now you do this. A nice transition between exhortation, excuse me, exposition and exhortation is the word therefore. It's not there every single time, but it's there often, especially in this book. Chapters 3 and 4 make up one big exhortation where the Hebrews preacher has just exposed some great things about Jesus, and he's saying, therefore, you go do this. Chapter 3, therefore, you continue so that you will reach the promised land. Chapter 4, that was chapter 3, I think I said chapter 4. That's chapter 3. Chapter 4, therefore, you continue so that you'll reach the Sabbath rest. He uses these metaphors and these images to encourage his people to continue. I'm going to tell you right now the one thing I've figured out about Hebrews that you've probably figured out so far if you've been sticking along with us is Hebrews is not a relaxing book. It's not. There's no flowery beds of ease as you're moving through the book of Hebrews. It is a martial call to continue with Christ. The thing that I enjoy about the book is that it's a call to fight the erosion of faith. And if you're like me, erosion of faith is not hard to imagine. You may have times in your lives where you can remember periods where faith seemed to wane. If you've walked with anybody in any period of time in the faith, you know that faith often erodes and it needs to be stirred up and it needs to be renewed This book is a reminder, too, that erosion of belief can result in total unbelief. And that total unbelief, he gives us some graphic images here in these two chapters. Total unbelief here, the image is a million sandy graves in the wilderness. And a people that were promised the promised land that never never received it, never enjoyed it, never stepped foot in it but only the next generation. Some graphic images and ones that we can't miss and ones that hopefully the Hebrews church engaged. This morning we are finishing up this exhortation that begins in chapter 3, verse 7 and goes all the way through chapter 4, verse 13. 
This morning, we're going to land the plane in these months that we've been in these couple of chapters on verse, with verses 11 through 13. It's a nice summary of what's being said here. I'm going to read verses 11 through 13, and then we're going to sort of unpack them. I want to expose and point out the luggage of these three verses. We're going to consider what this would have meant for them in some ways, and then what it should mean for us in regards to what's being said here. Chapter 4, verse 11. Let us, I'm going to insert, insert a few words here and there, things that we've gathered up that we can appropriately insert. Let us, therefore, as a church, let us, therefore, in light of what this warning has been exposed here in chapters 3 and 4, let us, therefore, strive. That word strive is a word that implies meticulous care, sober, attentive care. Let us as a church strive to enter that rest, the rest of the promised land and the rest of the Sabbath, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that their forefathers fell by 1,500 years earlier. Four, the Word of God is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. First of all, verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us together strive for the promised land, strive for the Sabbath, so that no one may fall by the same sort of erosion that likely you've experienced in your life, likely others have experienced in your life, like the Hebrews church was experiencing at the moment. Let us as a church be involved in the lives of the individual so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. And then in verse 12, this word for is a nice transition to a passage that I'm going to tell you right now. I've read, I don't know that I've ever preached it, but I've read it and referred to it for at least 10 years, likely longer, in regards to the nature of God's Word. And it's only in these last few months that I've begun to see what this passage is saying now in context. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There are five things that are shared here in regards to the Word. First, though, let me tell you what the Word is. I don't want to make no assumptions that everybody's tracking. The Word here that's brought up here in this passage in verse 12, for the Hebrews' church would have been the ancient Hebrew Scriptures. There may have been some Greek text. There might have been some New Testament passages that he's thinking of here. But for the most part, we can rest assured that he is speaking largely of the ancient Hebrew Scriptures. Think of some that we've considered already. Psalm 95, that's what's referenced in chapters 3 and 4 over and over and over again. Likely written 800 years before the Hebrews church would have even heard it in that sermon. It was something they were exposed to, 
And the Hebrews preacher brings it up in that moment. Psalm 95 would have been an appropriate reference there to go back to. There are other psalms that are considered in regards to these, in regards to this word. Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. These are all psalms that we've already engaged up to this point in the book of Hebrews. That's the word this Hebrew preacher is pointing back to is the ancient Hebrew scriptures and the message that they all came to hear that came true in Christ about, or that the Old Testament messages that came true about Christ that later became our New Testament. They're hearing here, when they hear the word, they're hearing ancient Hebrew scriptures and the message about how these ancient Hebrew scriptures came true in Christ through the verbal testimony of their dads and moms. That's what, they're be, that's what he's referring to here. Earlier in this chapter, he's already attested to the fact that what they've heard, it, it was declared at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. There in chapter 2. What he's referring to here is the word, is the written word in the Hebrew text, but also what their moms and dads taught them, what their preachers preached to them over the years already. And this word is what he's appealing to with five things. It's five things that they are living. These words are living. They are active. They are sharp. They are piercing. And they are discerning. These words that very easily would have been considered old and dead and forgotten in Psalm 95, Psalm 2, Psalm 8, Psalm 22, Psalm 110. These old words that could have been considered dead, he actually says these words are living. It's the same word that Christ used when he's speaking at the woman of the well. And he says, I will give you some living water. It's the same word that he used a few chapters later when he says, I will give you living bread. In fact, I am the living bread. This reference here to this word being living tells us it's more than a history book. It is at least that. It gives us some great history, some details of what happened to a people, a story, but it's so much more than a history book. It is a living message, as this chapter has told us, for today. It's as relevant for us today as it was for the Hebrews church. Remember, they're looking back on a passage that was likely written 800 years earlier in Psalm 95. Maybe a thousand years earlier, if David actually wrote it, about an event that had happened 1,500 years earlier. And he's saying, Hear it today. And here we are, 2,000 years after that, engaging not only the message that the Hebrews preacher gave them, but the message that they considered from 800 to 1,000 years earlier. And it is still living and it is still pertinent and potent for today. What a great word to start with in regards to the word that it is in fact living and it's active. This word active means effective. This word will get the job done. You're going to see how in a minute. You're going to see how without fail it will get the job done. Now the job might be one of two different things. But the word will get the job done. This word is sharper than the sharpest sword. 
I'm not going to spend any time dealing with that because the next two words that are talking about that sharpness help us understand what's being said there, that it's piercing and discerning. First of all, piercing. This word is penetrating even to the point, I found one guy that said this, a nice phrase, even to the point of subtle articulations of the inner being, things that you can't even distinguish between, this word penetrates too surgical and it's penetrating and it gets deeper than any person can get in your life it gets deeper than you can even get in your own life the word exposes your innermost being to the division of soul and spirit able to reach the deepest recesses of the human personality this word it's discerning. It's piercing and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This word in the Greek, discerning, is the word kritikos. And what it means is it, it judges. This word is judge. And it's based on verse 13, an all-knowing judge. Let's look at verse 13 together. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now here we've been talking in verse 12 about the word. There are five things that are exposed there in regards to the word. And here in verse 13, it seems to be transitioning to talking about God. And it doesn't make a very smooth transition. You'd miss it if you're not paying attention. But what he's saying here is that everything about God is carried out in the Word. The Word is not God, although you can make that argument based on John 1.1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But that's not the point that's being made here. The point that's being made here is the Word is the instrument that God is using. And look what he does here in verse 13 with this Word. No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. First of all, no creature is hidden from his sight. When I read that passage, there are a few passages that I thought of. I'm going to have you turn to some satellites today, but I'm going to have you, I'll let you know what they are when. I'll give you the references if you'd like to hear these passages that I don't have you turn to. This first one's in Revelation chapter 4. There are two chapters in my Bible that I love more than any other chapter, and they are chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation. Chapter 4 is a throne room vision of the Father. Chapter 5 is a throne room vision of the Son. Listen to the throne room vision of the Father. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. So John is carried up in this vision. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders. We don't even think these are humans. These are elders, creatures that he's made over the ages just to sit around and laud him, to cast their crowns at him all day long, every day, because he's that great 
They're clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire. That's the representation of the Holy Spirit, which are the seven spirits of God. That means the fullness of the Spirit is right there in the throne room. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. In this treasured passage There's the imagery of eyes everywhere, these critters that have eyes that are sitting right next to the throne that are telling God day in, day out, moment after moment, what's going on in creation? These eyes, these all-seeing eyes, and then below the throne is crystal, a sea of crystal. Beautiful picture that God sees everything. No creature is hidden means no creature is hidden. Heaven has a crystal floor so he can see everything. Psalm 33 says this, the Lord looks down from heaven and he sees all the children of man. All the children of man. Every moment of every day in the darkest corner, in the darkest recesses, in the darkest jungle, in the hottest desert, he sees every single person. No one is hidden from his sight. All are naked. All are exposed to him. These words naked and exposed, these are heartbreaking and real, vivid expressions of the plight of anyone that thinks he can deceive his creator. Ironically, you're naked before your creator. Even in your best hiding place, you're naked before your creator. A passage that came to mind as I considered this, it's in the book of Proverbs. I'll share it with you. You don't need to turn there. It's Again, it's not another essential. Chapter 15, verse 11, Sheol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. Sheol and Abaddon is a place where the dead are. Sheol is where the grave, that's, that's a reference to the grave, and Abaddon is where the darkest recesses of even death are. And these lie open before the Lord, things you can't see. And it says, how much more are the hearts of the children of man? If he can see in those places, we've got to know that he can see in the dark recesses of every living creature. We are naked and exposed to him. There is a continual and invasive surveillance of God. You okay with that? Does that cause you to tremble at all? Think about it. A continual and invasive surveillance of God and, connecting it to verse 12, and his word. His word is that invasive. Continual and invasive surveillance. You can't hide from him. And the implication from verse 12 is you can't hide from his word either. You can 
block your ears. You can put your fingers in your ears. You can avoid the exposition of it, but you can't hide from it. You're going to see that later. You can't hide from it. All must give an account, and all will give an account. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, God will bring every deed into judgment. With every, every secret thing, whether good or evil, God does not miss a thing. And if you were paying attention, you realize that word discerning, that criticos, that ability to judge, God is able to do that and God will do that. That's the promise that this passage makes here. He will judge. Man, I'm going to tell you this. I realize that judgment sort of sermons and judgment sort of passages are not real go-to passages. Judgment sort of sermons are not my favorite sermons to preach. And that's because I know that they don't tickle you. I'm made of the same stuff you are. I'd like to hear things that make me feel better about myself. Judgment sort of passages make me quake. And they make me fearful. And a great part of our our Bible is dedicated to judgment passages and judgment realities. Christ talked of judgment more than he talked nearly of any other thing. Judgment. Listen to these passages also in Hebrews. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, chapter 9, verse 27. Chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Over the last 10 years, there have been times where folks have come to Cross Point or visited Cross Point or were talking about church, and either someone is sharing with me or sharing a story from their past where they're sharing a, about a pastor or a ministry where it sounded like it was a lot of fire and brimstone. And I'm thinking, I hope there was some. I hope there was some because a lot of our Bible is dedicated to judgment. And seeing this passage in context really for the first time in these last few months now makes me realize this passage that has been a go-to passage for me to understand what the Word does, man, it's sharp. The Word of God is sharp. It's active. It's living. Divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Yeah. In context, it's saying, essentially, continue with Christ until you reach the promised land. Continue with Christ until you reach the Sabbath, or the Word will cut you to pieces. Seeing it in context, I'm like, wow, man, this has a totally different meaning. Instead of being something that I treasure, I'm sitting here going, oh, yeah, I love my Bible. I'm going, oh, step away from the Bible. Because this thing will hurt you if you treat God like a chump. And if you treat it like it doesn't apply to you. Because it does. No creature is hidden from his sight. What he's saying to these Hebrews believers right here is he's saying essentially Psalm 95 Hebrews church should pierce you and cut you to the heart even though it's written 800 years ago. Like I'm talking to the Hebrews church. Even though it's about our forefathers, 
It should pierce you and cut you to the heart, exposing complacency, exposing coolness, exposing erosion, and exposing error. It should do what it's supposed to do, cut and expose and bring about repentance, or, I said it's going to get the job done, or being grounds for judgment. Being your undoing, should you reject it? Should, should you walk away from it? Turn to Isaiah, actually turn to Ezekiel 37. I'm going to show you a couple of passages about the Word. A couple of treasured passages. Man, I'm telling you, for years these have been treasured passages for me. We're going to look at what the Word is from one angle, a really treasured angle, and then we're going to look at it from a really sober angle. We're going to come back to the point of this passage, but I want to show you a couple things in regards to God's Word. Ezekiel 37. The other reference is in Isaiah 55, so if you want to kind of have a finger in both, that's where we're going to go in these next couple minutes, just for a few minutes. Ezekiel chapter 37, both of these passages either have to do, like in Isaiah's case, where it is preparing them for the exile and helping them through portions of the exile, the Babylonian exile, eight, 700 or so, 600 years before Christ, or like in the case of Ezekiel, helping them survive while they're in exile, waiting for God to make things right and restore them to their land. So it's about God doing what he said he's going to do and bringing his people back. In some way, you could consider yourself, if you want to make this a really living sort of message, you can consider yourself in exile because we're not in our promised rest yet. We're sort of in exile away from God, but with God still his. Okay, listen to this passage. Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. Ezekiel has these freaky visions, but this is one that's really cool. This is one you can't make sense of. Some of them, you, you read it and you go, okay, all right, next chapter, I really don't know what Ezekiel just said, and don't ask me, because I don't know either. But I know what this one's saying. The hand of the Lord was upon me, brought me out in the spirit of the Lord, and he set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were dry. You know what a dry, white bone looks like. Let me see a picture of death. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And Ezekiel, I love his answer. Oh, Lord God, you know. I mean, it's not a no, not a yes. Lord, I know you know the answer, but I'm afraid to try it. Give it a shot. It made me think about when Jesus is standing before Lazarus' tomb, and he turned to Mary and Martha and says, roll the stone away. And they turn to him and say, Jesus, surely he stinketh. He's been dead and decaying for four days. Those bones are dry. Not at that point, obviously, but things are pretty hopeless. Oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. That's the agent here that God uses to do something pretty awesome. The word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, 
Behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. And he said to me, prophesy to these bones. Watch what the word of God continues to do. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. He said to me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. Behold, he stinketh. He's been dead four days. We are clean cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. I love these images of God's word as life giver. In the chapter before, he said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I read passages like that, and I'm going to tell you right now, as a pastor, I love preaching those passages. Life-giving passages about God's word, man, I love preaching those passages. Here's another one, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55. Hmm, some serious good medicine right here. Beginning in verse 10, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that for which I purpose it. And shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it here effective. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth in singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Look at what the word does here. It replaces the DNA of a thorn bush and a briar bush, myrtle and cedar. Man, I love that about the word. It takes a heart of stone. Come here. Rips it out. Puts in a heart of flesh. It takes dry bones. 
clippity-clap, clank, puts sinews on them, breath in them, and makes an army of them. I love that about God's Word. I love it about God's Word. He takes a thorny situation, and he makes it crepe myrtles. Man, I love that about God's Word. I love about God's word in the life-giving direction. I love that it is a purpose completer in the life-giving direction. That's what compels me to preach so often. But what the sermons that are really hard to preach is the point of what's being made here in Hebrews chapter 4. He's not making the point that God's word is a life giver in this case. If you don't continue with Christ to the Sabbath land, if you don't, or to the promised land, if you don't continue with Christ to the Sabbath, the word's going to cut you to pieces. It's going to do what it does. It is effective. That's the judgment direction. I don't love preaching those messages, but I love that it's true, and that's why I will do them, and I will believe them, and I will hear them, and I will embrace them. Because if you get one without the other, you're going to walk with a limp, Festus. Your car's going to drive with a, a pull to the right or the left, depending on which one you're bailing on. We've got to know that God is both life giver and judge. And his word both gives life and his word is judge. Turn to John chapter 12. I want you to see this in the Gospels. John chapter 12. I remember working through the book of John in this passage Christ has entered Jerusalem on the final week before he goes to the cross. It's a very important chapter. The Greeks have come to Christ. I can't remember who it is that brought them. Philip, it's ordinary Philip that brings the Greeks to meet Jesus. You know, Theo and I can't think of another Greek name, Billy Bob. They come up and meet Jesus and it's a big moment. And this is where Jesus, he starts talking about the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. He's thinking cross. He's thinking what's in store here in these next few days. Now it's time for what I'm about to do to go to the world. Those Greeks coming up was a big moment. This is a big chapter. Listen to what he says in verse 44. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. Okay, sounds good so far. Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my word, though, this is where it goes the other direction, and does not keep them, I don't judge him. Now, if, that's, if, it, if, the, if it was a period right there, if they moved on, then we might all exhale. You might exhale about those friends that you have or those family members that really don't care anything about God's word or what he has to say. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Sounds good so far, but let's continue. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Still sounds really good. Some people are going to walk with a limp if that's all they've got. The car's going to pull to the left. We're going to say the left if that's all they've got. But keep reading. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. Oh, wait a minute. You just said you weren't going to judge the world. You said that you came to save the world. I thought that's where we're leaving it. He said, no, that's not where I'm leaving it. 
There actually is a judge, and the one who does not receive my words has a judge, and that judge is the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I've not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Don't miss what's being said here. Whoever does not obey my word, hear my word, embrace my word. I didn't come to judge the world, but to save the world. Nice. The one who rejects me, though, and does not receive my words has a judge. Uh Uh-oh, who's the judge? The judge is the word that I've spoken. That will judge him on the last day. That's the same point that's being made over here in Hebrews chapter 4. God is not to be trifled with. His word is not to be trifled with. His word will be your judge. And remember, no creature's hidden. And remember, all are naked and exposed, and all must give an account. Jeremiah chapter 23 says this, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord God, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks? in pieces. See why I like to preach the other sermons? Because man, that makes us feel really good. We don't typically like to quake when we think about our God. But if we're going to take in the whole full counsel and the whole story, if we don't want to be guilty of what the Hebrews church is moving in the direction of, we've got to take in these warnings. We've got to take in these pictures of judgment. We've got to realize that the one who rejects Jesus and does not receive his words has a judge. We've got to realize that that judge is the word that he has spoken. And the judgment is sure. One of the passages that I considered early on in this sermon series I don't know if it's something that you remember, but it's something I remember. It's a passage that made me swallow really hard. It's in the book of Jude. Listen to it. Verse 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. If all you have is Jesus saving You're missing out on what else Jesus does. Jesus destroys, and that authority, that judge for that destruction, will be this word. Will be this word. For the Hebrews, it was a thin sliver of what we have now. Well, it was a a big chunk. Three quarters, four-fifths. The Hebrews church didn't have the epistles from Paul. Likely. The Hebrews church may have had a couple of the gospels, likely Mark, possibly Luke. But we don't even know if those have been circulated yet. For them, all they had mostly was the ancient Hebrew text. Look at what we have. Man, we have the gospels. What a treasure. We have Paul's letters. We have John's letters. We have so much. We have this book And this is the thing that will be our judge, the thing that is giving us life and putting sinews on our bones, putting flesh in our chest, is the thing that if we dismiss and walk away from, 
and wink at, trifle with, grow cool over, will be our judge. That's what the Hebrews preacher is saying. The word will do its work. It's effective. And no one will escape. Now, I want to be really honest with you. As I'm standing here in 2013, um, coming up on 10 years of, of ministry, at least here in Greenville, I think about that reality. I think the Lord or that the Word will do its work and it's effective and none will escape. And as my eyes, if I'm really to speak about what my eyes see, my eyes don't really see that, to be honest with you. What it looks like to me is that some seem to escape it. Some seem to be able to avoid it. It's not hard to just not listen. It's not hard to just stay home. It's not hard to then shop maybe for a message that doesn't deal with these sorts of stark realities. It's not hard to just not engage it. It's not hard to just dismiss as unfitting or unsuitable whatever you don't like. I see people do it all the time. I don't like that book of the Bible. I don't like that teaching in the Bible. It's out. That's not hard to do. So I see this sort of warning, and I'm thinking, man, those folks seem to get along just fine. And in some cases, if I'm to be really honest, what my eyes are seeing, in some cases, they get along even better. They're sort of carefree. Let's be really honest. They're sort of unencumbered. They sleep good on Sunday mornings. They may be in bed right now. Let's be really honest and consider this. People that don't consider his word and engage his word week after week, they're sort of carefree, free spirits. Light and airy they are. Let's be really honest. But the point that's being made here in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, is it's possible to escape from the penetrating, invasive work of the word now, but not in the end. Not in the end. Man, everyone gives an account sooner or later. All give an account sooner or later. His word will examine you, eventually disclosing the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I found this quote by N.T. Wright. It's so good. Just listen to this. If this is going to happen sooner or later, he's talking about the examining work of the word. If this is going to happen sooner or later, you might as well get on with it. You might as well get on with it. If you have a choice between letting the doctor examine you right away, uncomfortable though it may be, or waiting until the doctor does a post-mortem on you after it's too late, which would you choose? You're going to be examined by the doctor or by the coroner. You're going to be examined by his word. Would you rather submit to the work weekly and daily 
of the work of a doctor, surgically exposing the thoughts and intentions of the heart, getting at places that you can't see, getting at places that your buddy, your spouse, your friends, your family members can't even see and discern? Or do you want to just kind of stiff arm that saying, man, that's too hard. I'll just wait. No full will, you will be examined, at least post-mortem in the end. For his word will do its work. It is effective. It gives breath, life to dry bones. It's like rain on the earth, but it's also like a hammer and like fire. Don't miss it. It's like a double-edged sword piercing and discerning. And no one, no one is hidden. All must give an account. So continue. Continue. Continue, Hebrews church. Don't go to an easy fallback. Continue, Crosspoint Fellowship. Continue laboring with his word. I thought a nice way to end the morning would be connecting trials as a tutor in God's word. If I were to stop right now, it would be just a little short of my typical length. And I'm not even going to go my typical length, but this is just too good to connect to. Just very briefly, I want you to look at one passage. Two to, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Since we're considering together what God does through his word, so often the word becomes sort of utilitarian. You know, we have some sort of crisis, we have some sort of need, we have some sort of issue that we need to make sense of, so we go to God's word. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. That is a great thing. But if that's the only time you go to God's word, you're really missing out on the best thing. So you can treat his word utilitarian, not realizing that his word is the way that we fellowship with him. It's the way that we come to get to know our God. Listen to this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And he humbled you. This is uh, Moses is speaking about the nation of Israel, speaking of what God did. And God humbled you, Israel. This is just before they go into the promised land. God humbled you and let you hunger. Just let that sit for a moment. God let you hunger. God let you go through a trial that was really, 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 really hard. God let you go through difficult situations. God let you go through in, into a, enter into a difficult marriage. God let you have a, a medical crisis. God let you possibly lose your job or possibly lose your job. God let you hunger. Put problem X in there. Let this thing come to life like it should in your lives. He humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna just enough for today. Just enough. Which you did not even know, nor did your fathers know. Food dropped from the sky. Who's ever heard of that? Your dad didn't go, oh, yeah, I remember when God did this before. God came up with a whole new plan in their crisis, something they couldn't have even imagined. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, 
but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. He let you hunger so that you would learn that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Man, what a beautiful, beautiful perspective comes from that. David in Psalm 119 said this, It is good for me that I was afflicted, I was hungry. It's good for me that I went through this trial. It's good for me that I was maybe wrongly accused, maybe rightly accused. It's good for me that I had to go through this medical trial. It's good for me that I've had to work really hard in my marriage that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Do you know how easy it is to treat the word only as utilitarian and only go to it to try and fix your problems, not realizing it is the way that we come to know our God is God. It is the goods for relationship. And trials are a sweet tutor in God's word. Sweet tutor. That's why we can be thankful in all things. Because we have this book, we can go with David and thank God together. It's good that I was afflicted because I came to know your statutes. It's good that I was hungry for I came to know that man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Yes. You realize what he's doing, people of God? This is a good word. He is habituating in us a dependence and a trust on him and his word. You may not like that word habituating because that implies it's going to happen a lot. But that's the reality of it. He's habituating in us a trust and dependence on him and his word that gives breath to dry bones. If it's engaged weekly, hear the doctor, hear vitality, hear life and health, and turns the thorns and the briars to cypress and myrtle if it's abided in. If it's not, oh man, erosion, decay, unbelief. If I were to imagine what I could preach on the tail end of this little sermon series where we looked at his warning in chapter 3, and his promise in chapter 4, where we looked at this strong exhortation to continue, if I could imagine the sermon that I would have the privilege and honor of preaching at what's nearly the 10-year mark, not quite for me in 10 years of ministry, to think about his sovereignty and design to let it be this sermon blesses my heart. That's what climbed, it's the same thing. I'm not going to cry today, but it's the same thing that climbed all over me last week as I'm sitting by myself at home reading those Revelation passages where he's talking about conquer. To him who conquers belongs it all, the goods. What a great God to give us these sort of ministries. He's ministered to me and giving me the privilege of engaging this message, realizing this is the mark of our ministry together in the last 10 years. As I'm looking at it, it's affirming. Have we arrived? No. Do we have a lot to learn and a lot to figure out? Absolutely. Every single one of us, every elder included, some more than others. Just kidding. I thought, thought I'd throw that in there. Me more than others. 
Man, what a sweet mark of 10 years of ministry right here. A sobriety with God's word. An eagerness to be habituated from toddlers to teens to adults to families to those in their twilight. Habituated. Habituated. No dancing girls, no jokes, no videos unless we're announcing something. Nothing more than just unpacking it, setting it free week after week, giving life to dry bones, <laughs> right? Giving flesh to stony hearts. Man, these sort of realities make for endurance with deep roots and claws even in God's word. Claws. So much so that if somebody got up here with a quippy little 20-minute sermon, you would, you would hurt them. You wouldn't hurt them. But you might. Because you know we need more. You know God's people need more. We can't live on Tic Tacs. We need meat, potatoes, vegetables, and some dessert from time to time. Sweet mark of our ministry, I feel like, of a relentless and faithful exposition from every person that stands up here. It's not about any one person, but every person that stands right here knows. Set it loose. Set it free relentlessly. And then relentlessly and faithfully go walk in it, people. Go walk in it. Week after week after week. It's all we've got. But in that, we've got a lot. We're going to have our supper together. Supper this morning, I've been putting off, putting off for the last few weeks. Turn to Matthew chapter 6. I want you to see it. This supper I've been putting off for this specific morning. We're about to take a basic meal together, and we're going to consider one of the most basic of passages. Jesus is teaching his people how to pray. One of the most basic of prayers embedded within one of the most basic of sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. And we could say, most of us, many of us have memorized this prayer. We would say that this prayer in some ways as far as how to and praying would be prayer 101. For Christianity 101. Okay, let's just make this really, really basic. And look at this at what face value of what's being said. Pray then like this, starting in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You can't tell me there wasn't Jew that didn't think about manna falling from the sky. Give us this day our daily bread like you gave manna to our forefathers. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lead us not into temptation. One of the sweet treasures of actually having some tools at your 
your use in the Greek is you can connect some dots that just are hard to connect otherwise. And one treasured connection is this word temptation is the very same word that's used in Hebrews chapter 3. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness. It's the same exact word that's used of testing. Temptation and test mean the same thing. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's a word that's used a lot in the New Testament. And so often it's used, it's used in a context where you would expect that an early Jew would be thinking of the wilderness experience. That was their context. You may not think of that in terms of temptation, but they likely would have. So whether it's the Hebrews church hearing Psalm 95, don't do what your fathers did at Meribah and Mesa, or whether it's the Jews that are sitting around on a grassy hill on the mount, listening to the Sermon on the Mount, being taught to pray and hearing, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, they likely would have made the connection that that's essentially like saying, Lord, please keep us from falling away as our fathers did in the wilderness in basic prayer 101. I hear more humility in this basic prayer, if that's a fair connection, than I hear from a lot of Christians today. I hear more dependence on God right here. Lord, bind my wandering heart to thee thee, is what you hear in that prayer. Lord, please keep me from doing what my forefathers did. Keep me close to you. Bind me up in you. Tie me up like a fetter. That's what I hope to hear in you. That's what I hope to hear in me. It's not doubt. I'm not doubting God. It's me. I know myself. And I know what I'm capable of. Lord, keep me close. I'm a sheep. You're a shepherd. Keep me close. Please don't let me do what my fathers did at Meribah and Massa, where they disbelieved you and they bailed on you. What a great, great prayer for us to pray together as we take a basic meal together. A basic prayer. God, please, 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 don't let us fall away as our fathers did in the wilderness as we hope our fathers didn't in the Hebrews church. As we hope that they were stirred up to faithfulness and they continued with Christ. I'm going to pray, and we're going to take our supper together with this prayer. Lord, I'm so thankful, first of all, to the end, the sweet ending of these couple of chapters worth of exhortation. I'm so thankful that you give us good stiff warnings that help us see the consequences of what it means to be unfaithful to our divine husband. Lord, I'm thankful that understood rightly, they don't take the joy out of the journey, but they give me what I hope to be, what I believe to be, a healthy fear of you. I pray that that's been fostered in this people And Lord, I pray that as we take the supper here together in these next few minutes, that we take the supper together as a really dependent, needy people who are being habituated with trust and dependence on you and your word.
And that even our most basic prayer, we can pray right now, Lord, keep us from falling away as our ancient fathers did in the wilderness. Keep every elder from falling away as our ancient fathers did in the wilderness. Keep every deacon from falling away as our ancient fathers did in the wilderness. Keep every small group shepherd from falling away as our ancient fathers did in the wilderness. Keep every shepherd of every family from falling away as our ancient fathers did in the wilderness. Keep every spouse, every wife, as she is ministering to her family, keep her from falling away as our ancient fathers did in the wilderness. Lord, keep every young person from falling away, every youth. It's so easily caught up in the cares of the world. Keep them from falling away as our ancient fathers did in the wilderness. Every child that's either in this room or every little infant or toddler that's in the building next door, keep them in your name. Keep them from falling away as our fathers did in the wilderness. We need you every single day like manna. We are totally and completely and wholly dependent on you. We have no hope of continuing this journey without your sustaining us, without your making our way straight, without your making our way blameless. So we cast ourselves at your feet dependent. I'm thankful that we have this meal weekly that reminds us that our faith and our salvation will ever be dependent on a perfect and finished work that Christ completed, not on our own. Lord, I pray that will compel us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel and sleeping well at night knowing that you've already secured it. I'm thankful for this meal, Lord. Thankful for our time together this morning. Pray that you'll be enjoyed in these next few minutes as we take and eat and drink. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. One brief announcement. The youth and youth parents, y'all don't uh, forget you're meeting in the treehouse after this. Uh, youth and youth parents. And McCullough wanted me to mention that there is food. It seems to be an impetus to get people to meetings. It is poetic and beautiful that the Lord's timing is what it is. Um, some of y'all, most of y'all know, maybe not everyone, um, at the end of this week, Ben will start his second sabbatical. It's a three-month sabbatical. I'll explain that a little bit more in a minute. But that the Lord would, over the course of a decade, in his infinite wisdom, make it so that Ben would preach the sermon he just preached before he goes into sabbatical. It's amazing. I mean, don't miss that. Some of us think we got our heads wrapped around God. You don't. You don't have your head wrapped around God. He, he's mysterious, and he does things, and his timing it, is beyond what we could ever orchestrate. So in your sabbatical, I would suggest don't rest and rest. Rest in Christ as you've preached, and I don't expect you'll be abandoning the word as you do it. That said, I'd like to talk about Ben as if he's not here for a few minutes. <laughs> and then we can address him. In 2003, I got a phone call from Ben McGraw, a first-time pastor asking if I'd be interested in coming to help plant a church in Greenville, Texas. The only thing I knew about Greenville was it was where the weatherman stands when you watch the news. 
you don't ever know what the temperature is in Greenville. As he explained the church plant, it was obvious that he had no idea what he was doing. So I decided to come on board so that there might be some chance of success. Getting to know my new boss was interesting to say the least. A former military man slash head hunter slash car salesman now turned pastor. I found him to be less than conventional. I remember early on we discussed a million different things about ministry and possibilities and strategies and I remember Ben saying to me, remember I was 23 at the time so I knew everything. I remember him saying to me, I think I'm just going to preach through the Bible. I didn't have the heart to tell him it probably wouldn't work. <laughs> I wasn't very impressive. And he said he was going to start with the book of John. Honestly, at the beginning of this journey, I didn't really care what book he started with because I figured that within the first few years, we'd both move on to bigger and better things. But eight short years later, we finished the book of John and moved into the book of Hebrews, which we're slated to finish sometime in 2019. When we constituted as a church, one thing that was included in our bylaws was that every five years, full-time pastoral staff is required, not suggested, it is required that they take a three-month sabbatical for the specific purpose of rest and growth. At the end of this week, Ben will begin his second sabbatical. His second sabbatical, this is significant. This is a moment worthy of recounting. In our day and time, it is a rare blessing to see a local church be able to look back 10 years later and still have the same pastor that planted it. The life expectancy of a pastor in a local church is usually two, three years, and either he wants to leave or they want him to leave. And not only that, he still loves Jesus. He still loves Jesus, and he's still preaching the Bible. It's raised up a generation that if they went and visited somewhere and they weren't preaching the Bible, they would know something was wrong. It's refined their taste buds and habituated them, to borrow a word. Ben, I cannot fully express the thankfulness that I have for being able to call you a fellow pastor and a close friend. I didn't think we were going to be friends at first, but we are. We never killed each other. We're still walking together. You're the same man in private as you are in public. Your fidelity to the word has had an impact on my life personally as well as many others. That's fruitfulness will only be understood in the light of eternity. Remember the sign on your wall, all the fruit on all the branches, on all the trees. You've taught me much about the holiness of God and how such holiness affects absolutely everything. Under your preaching, we have learned what it means to be God's house, what it means to shepherd our families. Ten years ago, if someone said shepherd your family, we would have all said, what, what are you talking about? Now it's, it's what we do. It's the dailiness of it. We've learned what it means to be students of our own stench, what it means to have a great high priest, what it means to be a peacemaker, what it means to be perichoretically members of one another, what it means to walk in dominion, what it means to be a supping, baptized, baptizing, loved and loving, lead and leadable, taught and teachable, and accountable people. And that's just the things I could think off the top of my head. We've learned many, many, many other things as well. You, sir, have blessed this body immensely. And today we celebrate what God has done and is doing through your life and your ministry. 
Today, as a body, we want to thank you for spending and being spent gladly on our souls. Thank you for always pointing to God in the good times and not pointing to yourself. And thank you for always persevering and keeping your eye on God in the hard times and urging others to follow suit. Thank you for not only teaching about God's sovereignty, but for setting an example for other believers and what it means to live in light of such truth. Thank you for shepherding the flock that is among you. And for doing so, not for your own glory, but for the glory of God. Through you, God has blessed this body in a significant way. And I never thought I would say this early on, but I eagerly look forward to our next 10 years of ministry together. Brad's going to share a few more things. We have a love offering from the body that we would like to bless you with. And then we're going to pray over you and your family and send you off into the next three months ready for rest and for growth for all of you, not just you. I mentioned a couple months ago when we were in 1 Timothy 4 about what this good servant of Jesus is. And um, I just can't help but as I look back over the last 10 years, think about this passage and what Paul's telling Timothy here. Uh, in chapter 4, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith, good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds the promise for this present life and for the life to come. This is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on a living God. And what I said a couple months ago, I want to say again today, this is work. It's toiling and striving for the preacher to... It's real easy to say these things that he said today and say that we're going to preach expository preaching here. We're going to just open the Bible and explain it, and we're going to go verse by verse. That's really easy to say, but it's very difficult to walk in as the preacher. And you've heard some of that from him, but I can tell you it's very difficult to go to the next verse knowing that it's going to unnerve some of you, and it's going to unnerve me and what it's done. And then... Paul goes on to say, command and teach these things and let no one despise you. Okay, so not only is that difficult enough, there's an inclination in the people to kind of go, nah, and dismiss. So you have to preach knowing that, that there's an inclination to not do the work with you. And then he goes on to tell Timothy, practice these things, devote yourself in them. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Like Scott said, so timely the message this morning. Just like Paul told, tells Timothy, persist and practice. And Ben, for 10 years I've seen you practice these things. Good doctrine, digging, connecting, telling us the story, explaining it, loving people with the gospel. You've loved us with the gospel, not with a chaplaincy, not with fancy words and clever speech, not with funny illustrations and inspirational stories. You, you've, you have a few of them, but not many. And we're, we're still going to give you grief for not being able to land the plane in 30 minutes, but we're, we'll always do that. That's one of your assignments for sabbatical. <laughs> but I, every time I read this passage, I think of you. You're a good servant of Jesus. That's what Paul would say. 
You've served him well because you love him and you love your people and you love your people with this. And you've done that. And I remember early on him saying, look, we're going to do expository preaching and I'm going to preach verse by verse. And then we came to the first hard truth. I wish you could have been in that meeting. (laughs) The thought is, y'all are going to leave. Nobody's going to come back next week for to keep doing it, this persisting and practicing. We're, that goes against every church growth strategy we have ever heard. I mean, it's every, it goes against every church. How do you grow a church? Well, you can't do that every week. You can't just keep unpacking sound doctrine. They're going to get tired of it. And yet we know differently. And I'm thankful that he set Ben's heart on it and that he's kept his heart in it and he hasn't quit and he's persisted. And I'm also grateful of what he's done in us, just like he mentioned a while ago. We've become habituated. We have an appetite. And I'm grateful for what he's done in us around Ben leading the preaching ministry is that we won't have it. I mean, inspirational stories won't do it for me. I need to know more about the gospel and the implications. Thank you for loving us like that. And uh, get rest and grow and enjoy your family. And to the McGraw family, thank you for loving your dad and for allowing him to be a shepherd to us too. And Christy, thank you for letting us have Ben as our pastor and for walking faithfully with him. We're grateful for y'all. We want to end this morning by praying for y'all. So would you, would your family come up here? You and your family, bring them up here. And we're going to dismiss after this prayer, but what, what we're going to ask them to do is do the Baptist thing where they stand here and everybody do this though. Take, take a moment um, to share with them briefly uh, a word of encouragement before they go on sabbatical. We're going to ask them to stay here for a little bit after we dismiss. So um, I'm going to pray and uh, lead this time in prayer. And y'all pray with us with, for the McGraw family as they travel and pray for Ben specifically as he rests and exactly what he's been doing. And that he, God would give him opportunity for growing and training even more and more specifically while he's on this sabbatical. Father, thank you for Ben McGraw. Thank you for his family. Thank you for sending him here. Thank you for keeping him here. Thank you for raising a beautiful bride up around him. And I'm, I'm grateful that, God, I'm really grateful that uh, we don't expect the wrong things out of him. I'm grateful that we've come. You've taught us to expect him to preach and expect him to preach sound doctrine and persist and toil and strive and practice sound doctrine. Keep us in check, God. Don't ever let us expect anything else from him as he leads the preaching ministry here. We're grateful for this sweet family, for how you've blessed them and provided for them while they've been here. And I'm grateful that... um, Ben hasn't quit when I would have probably. Thank you for giving him that persistence and that consistency. And we pray that you'd continue to give that to his heart, give that to his stamina, give that to his, uh, his will, give it to his mind and his heart that he would continue and just keep trusting what we heard this morning. Thank you for this family. Give them rest and growth. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all are dismissed. Come by and... Bless them.